on this episode of the Evolve Podcast. So traditional institutions have traditions, which is both their strength and in some ways their lesson strengths, and that they're going to be much slower and they're going to be uh, reluctance to change. Whereas with a small startup, you can be very nimble. You can collect data, pivot very quickly, update uh, and move. So I think moving forward with these opportunities now for the, the, say the 11 different types of hybrid that I identified, to be able to try them out. Welcome to Evolve. My name is Brandon Stover and I interview purpose-driven founders and leaders to educate, inspire, and empower your success in leaving an impact on the world. The goal here is for the rest of us to ask the world's biggest questions, build startups to solve them, and live fulfilling lives in the process. Hey everyone, welcome to Evolve. I'm Brandon Stover and today's guest is a serial founder, psychologist, neuroscientist, and an expert on the science of learning with over a 40 year career in transforming education. After having written or co-authored 15 books, published more than 300 papers, receiving numerous awards, and being a center director at Stanford and a dean at Harvard, This brilliant researcher jumped at the opportunity to put his ideas into practice by becoming the founding dean and chief academic officer at Minerva, a startup to reinvent American higher education. To hear more about Minerva, listen to episode 31 on the Evolve podcast where I interview founder Ben Nelson. However, today's ambitious educator wanted to help more learners at an even larger scale. So he went on to become founder and chief academic officer of Foundry College, which was recently named a top 100 edtech company in North America. This online two-year college is designed to help working adults develop skills and knowledge that will not be automated in the foreseeable future. Within the midst of the 2020 global pandemic and the need for online education, he also published a new book, Active Learning Online, five principles that make online courses come alive and started a new company, Active Learning Sciences, as he realized the best way to fulfill his mission in life is not to teach students directly, but to help others use the science of learning to design new cutting edge educational programs and courses. Today's guest is Stephen Coslin, founder of Active Learning Sciences and Foundry College. Stephen spent decades in research that focused primarily on the nature of visual cognition, visual communication, and the science of learning, and published over 300 scientific papers to really become a master of his craft. He was obsessed with the question about how one might cure society's ills. And after digging into mental imaging, psychology, and neuroscience, he started to theorize that education might be the key to this and began a path to deliver the most effective education he could. So I had this idea that the way to make society better is through education. And you gotta start early. And so I started studying developmental psychology and discovered that there were these theories that the way, the means, the format of thought changes over age. And in particular, during what I took to be a critical period, sort of between, say, two and five, six years old, children, purportedly, relied primarily on mental imagery. Mm. So it occurred to me that, hmm, if you could figure out how to use mental imagery really effectively as a teaching aid, you could could make progress. Mm -hmm. And that, in turn, required understanding what mental imagery is all about. So that ended up being like a two-decade long kind of diversion. I ended up getting very immersed in trying to figure out 
what mental imagery, particularly visual mental imagery, is all about. It's seeing with the mind's eye. And that, that led me into neuroscience, where I was discovering that parts of the brain that are used in vision, when, you, when your eyes are closed or lit up, when you visualize. And in fact, over 90% of the same brain areas are activated both when your eyes are open, you're seeing something, and when you're visualizing it. Mm. So all, all of that sort of positioned me pretty well when I started thinking about higher education, to think about just generally applying what we know about memory in general, perception, learning, all that, applying it systematically to try to further education at multiple levels, not just like K-12. Yeah, well, when you started to help Harvard with their general education and redefining that, what solutions did you start developing for them? That was an interesting process. It really went back to first principles as to what general education ought to do. Mm -hmm. So I was a member of uh, six faculty and two students on that committee. And uh, we came up with a pretty reasonable program in terms of what we thought foundational knowledge ought to be. And then I discovered just how incredibly, incredibly political these things are. Mm. I mean, I was, I was really naive, just incredibly naive. Uh, it hadn't really occurred to me, and it should have, that by changing general education requirements, you're going to change enrollments and when you change in particular courses. And when you change enrollments, that has ramifications for number of faculty that can be hired and budgets and things like that. So I, I just was very naive about the realities of how all this works. So it was kind of a crash course in not only thinking about general education from a principled perspective, but also the politics of how things get done hmm. in universities where you have something called faculty governance, where the, the faculty really have a major say in, in what happens. So you, you have to bring people along. You have to make it clear. Uh, why certain things are in everyone's best interest. One of the quotes that you admire from Albert Einstein is, the value of education in a liberal arts college is not learning of many facts, but the training of the mind to think of something that cannot be learned from textbooks. What do you think that thing is the mind should be able to do? So lately I've been thinking about it in terms of what I call hacks and heuristics. Hmm. And this is derived from Daniel Kahneman's uh, work on thinking fast and slow where he has this really good idea, which is actually very firmly rooted in a lot of neuroscience, that there are these two systems, one of which is very fast, and things are in parallel, it's unconscious, it's automatic. And the other, and that's, he calls it system one because it's evolutionarily older, share it with a lot of other animals. The other system two, evolutionarily more recent, is slow, serial, it's unconscious, it's not automatic, it's under voluntary control, kind of logic-driven. So thinking about education from the perspective of those two systems, it occurred to me that one goal might be to try to get as much into system one as you can. Hmm. So that relieves cognitive load, it's automatic, you have to think about it, and so forth. So hacks are essentially solutions to problems that can be automatically triggered by the, the appropriate circumstances. So the, the way I think about that is like a funnel, where you wanted to find a wide range of circumstances that'll plug into a given hack where it's appropriate, and then a wide range of circumstances under which you can actually then do something with it, apply right. it. So for example, 
there is something called five paragraph form, which many students are taught in high school about how to write a little essay. Well, it turns out that way of thinking about things where you have an introduction where you lay out, in this case, three points, and then you have each point addressed in turn. That gives you four of the paragraphs. And then a conclusion at the end where you pull it all together. That can be used for speaking. Yeah. It can be used for making arguments. It be, it's, it's actually quite a general format schema. So you can define the top of that funnel in terms of a lot of different ways, situations in which it's appropriate. And then the trick is in the bottom part of the funnel, you need some of system two. Because mm-hmm. system one will just pull up the form, but to fill in the slots, as it were, you know, what are the three things I'm going to talk about? That's going to come from system two. So this led me to start thinking about how the two systems interact dynamically mm. over time. And that, that's where the heuristics idea came from, that a hack is a solution to a problem. Right. A heuristic is an approach, mm. a method that may, often will solve a problem, but not necessarily. And hacks are very much loaded on system one, heuristics very much loaded on system two, but they interact. So thinking, thinking about education from a broad perspective, this approach has led me to think about how you can educate almost anybody. Mm. If, you, if you think of it this way, in terms of how you get that top of the funnel where the circumstances under which a hack are appropriate laid out, well, that's active learning. Right. You do lots of different kinds of active learning, different kinds of circumstances, role-playing, different kinds of problem-solving, debating, where people get specific examples of what those circumstances, the conditions, as it were, that trigger the hack. And then, of course, you teach them the hack. And then, again, you have to give them examples of how you apply it, how you actually fan out at the bottom, flesh it out, to help build in what will trigger the appropriate system to slower, logical reasoning process to plug it in. So this this general way of looking at things has turned out to be really useful from my perspective. Mm. It makes me think of having a sort of system, as you mentioned, you know, like the five paragraph form that can automatically be used. And then it takes the person, the thing that their mind should be thinking about, should be working on is how do I actually use this system in this circumstance? So taking all the input from this circumstance, and now how do I use this system to actually effectively solve the problem? Exactly right. And so you'll have to draw on some system two for that latter part. So all this stuff, going back to Einstein, you can't learn this from books. You've got to do it. Something that I really admire about you is this desire to put your research into practice, into action, which made it very easy to see why you would jump at joining Minerva as the founding dean. How did you start developing Minerva's first curriculum, and what were the early days like for you? Minerva is a liberal arts university, four years very selective. They were taking less than 2% of the applications when I, when I left. So the first question was, what should a general education program look like? So if you think about curriculum, all North American curricula have three components. They have general education, which is supposed to give you a broad foundation. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to last you the rest of your life. Usually it doesn't. Usually it's, as you probably experienced, you, you have three columns you know, natural sciences, human, arts and humanities, and social sciences, and you pick two from each. I mean, something like that is a standard general education right. approach. No structure, no relations, nothing. So I didn't want to do that. 
So we instead developed four cornerstone courses that we thought were really going to give them foundations on how to communicate clearly, how to understand complex systems. That was probably the best thing we did. Mm. Because so much can be understood in terms of complex systems, and you don't learn it formally in most college settings in a way that can be applied to daily life. So we developed a real general education program, uh, very high level, very rigorous, quite difficult, actually. And then we did similar kinds of things with the uh, major uh, and the electives. So general education, major electives, those are three components that all curricula tend to have, do have, as far as I know, in North America. So the approach that I took for the general education program was sort of the precursor to hacks and heuristics. It was based on production systems. So production systems comes out of a mathematical formalism by some guy named Post, and it was really developed by Newell and Simon at Carnegie Mellon back in the day, early artificial intelligence approach to problem solving in particular, where the idea is a production has a condition and an action, sort of an if and a then. So if it's raining, that's a condition, get an umbrella. That's the action. The trick is that the output of one can now be the input of another. Mm. So, for example, if it's raining, get an umbrella. Well, get an umbrella. How do I get an umbrella? Well, if you want to get an umbrella, go to your closet. Okay? Now what about in the closet? How do I find the umbrella? Well, if I'm looking for an umbrella in the closet, look on this shelf. Something like that. So they had thousands and thousands of these little left-then things, which would be triggered as appropriate. Mm. So at Minerva, I thought about habits of mind and foundational concepts. So habits of mind where were the condition part became automatic. And foundational concepts was sort of the other way around. So like doing a T-test, the hard part is not doing the test. It's knowing when right. to do it. So the test itself can be quite automatic, e- easy. Whereas for the Habits of mind was sort of the other way around. It was figuring out how to actually apply it. So, mm-hmm. you know, adjust, adjust what your message is depending on your audience is. That's straightforward. Well, but actually doing it. Well, so the action part is harder. So you can see how this led to the thinking about system one and system two and the interaction yeah. between them. So that was a kind of descendant of the original approach. How did you approach the challenges of entering the startup world coming from research and academia? Not as well as I probably should have. Mm. I seem to have a history of being slightly naive when I first get into things, more (laughs) more than slightly, truth be told. I had this incredibly naive view, which I really should have known better, that quality qua quality was going to win out. And we know that's not true. We know that marketing is at least as important as the quality of what the product is. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I know that quite well now. (laughs) Okay. But yeah, it was a, an awakening, let us say, to mm-hmm. figure that out. That, you know, I, my view was build the absolutely best curriculum, pedagogy, build the technology to deliver it. And, you know, the world will beat a path because there's a better mousetrap. Well, that doesn't actually happen. Yeah. Sad to say. So, yeah, it was a learning experience. It was fun, though. I learned, I learned a lot about business and stuff that I had no inkling was even out there because I was sort of really sequestered in a kind of academic environment for decades. 
What did you um, happen to take away, you know, working with Ben Nelson and Minerva that would later help you in launching Foundry? I learned about the importance of marketing. I learned about, well, so Minerva is an elite institution. So a lot of what we did at Foundry was kind of a reaction to that. Mm. It's kind of like, well, elite institution works really well with seminars. It's all seminars, at least when I was there. I've been gone for years now, so I don't, it may well have changed since I left. But when I, when I left in 2018, it was all seminars. And that doesn't scale very well. And Minerva was not going to scale. I mean, it's going to be under a thousand students last I heard. So I wanted to do kind of the un-Minerva in many ways, something that would be not for traditional college students who are very well qualified, but for ordinary adults, not liberal arts, but something that was going to be job relevant. Mm. So the, the thing that was driving me was come up with what adults need to know so they can get jobs that will not soon be automated. That was really what was the driving idea behind Foundry College, at least when I founded it. So all of that called for a different approach from what Minerva did. It required thinking about how to scale. So it's not going to be seminars, but seminars are really good because you can do a lot of active learning. So I realized there was a way to have your cake and eat it too, hmm. which was have massive lectures. It doesn't really matter how many people are sitting in the audience uh, during a lecture, but have breakout groups. And so the breakout groups, the small groups are where you can have the active learning taking place. And you can now take advantage of the fact you've got this large end from the lecture. We've got a lot of data about what each individual does well or doesn't do well or is interested in and so on. And you can use that to compose the breakout groups. Yeah. So you can actually have some real advantages over just having straight seminars by composing groups that are relevant particular learning objectives, particular things you want to accomplish based on student profiles. All, all profile sounds bad. It, it's all it's data that's kept anonymous, never, never discussed mm-hmm. outside of the system. It's just used to further education. It's think of it as a bar graph where the height of the bar reflects relative strengths or weaknesses on different dimensions that you can measure. So, so there was a way to have our cake and eat it too and scale up. And this idea, this emphasis on relevance, information they could actually use, led us to start thinking about knowledge and skills and different kinds of learning objectives, the ones that are based on information that you can use in multiple different ways and ones that are more like these hacks I was discussing that are really skills that are triggered. Hey, this is Brandon Stover, and you're listening to the Evolve Podcast with Stephen Crossland, founder of Active Learning Sciences and Foundry College. In just a moment, you're going to hear about the groundbreaking innovations he developed at Foundry College to prepare students for the 21st century. But first, I want to let you know that all the resources and lessons from this episode are available as a free worksheet at evolvethe.world and clicking on the worksheet button in the upper right hand corner. All the expertise and lessons that Stephen is sharing today are super valuable, but they're only as valuable as the ones that you're actually going to put into execution. So that's why I distill all the action items from each episode into one easy to use step-by-step worksheet. So now you can immediately start applying these to your life and business. These lessons include how to turn years of research and expertise into startups, how to iterate and scale successful solutions, 
and opportunities for entrepreneurs to tackle in education, and so many more. All these lessons are available at evolvethe.world and clicking on the worksheet button in the upper right-hand corner. That's evolvethe.world, or you can follow the link inside the show notes of your podcast app. Now let's get back to the Evolve podcast with Stephen Coslin, founder of Active Learning Sciences and Foundry College, as he describes the problem he was trying to solve in education with Foundry College. Here's a problem I'm trying to solve. And there are two people, it turns out, who are on the board of a nonprofit here in New York, where they work with high school dropouts, teach them to fix cell phones. Hmm. But you know what they discovered happens after a few years? Cell phones update. Exactly. So you do not want to teach vocationally. You don't want to teach them to fix the current cell phones because then they're not going to be able to adapt and be able to roll with the changes and fix the new ones. So they need more than a brittle vocational training. They need a foundation. So that, that was the idea for the first part at Foundry. Give them a broad foundation in the kind of skills that are going to be enduring, professional soft skills, what you want to call them, things like critical thinking and communication ability and problem-solving ability and so forth. It's a pretty standard list out there by now. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, have a two-course sequence where they learn what they need to be able to get an entry-level Salesforce administration job or project management and various other ones are now being built out. So they get a certificate from a third party, Mm. is the idea, which qualifies them for a decent job. And then the idea is stacked on top of that, you focus them on a major. So you can think of that as general education with this other thing on it, as specific. But then you can have a business administration, actually business management is what we can call it, a major that will result in an associate degree. Okay. So, because the degrees are still relevant. So, right now, the founders are involved in the accreditation process for that. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about the signaling power of a, the certificate versus like a degree to the eyes of the employer and how they're looking at this education? Right. I'm not sure there's one answer to that. I think it, it really varies depending on the employer, it also varies depending on the certificate. So, not all certificates are created equal. Right. I think the key is to get a track record and to have the the proof be in the pudding, as it were. That is, if your certificate means something, then the people who hold it are going to actually be able to do certain things. And you want to get a reputation for that. So it takes time. Degrees, on the other hand, everybody understands. They think they do anyway. (laughs) The degree signals, yeah, I know. It's like, I don't know. I mean, if... There's a book called, which is the one by Brian Kaplan, some incredibly provocative title, The Case Against Education, something like that, Okay. where he argues in there that that 80% of the value of a degree is just the signal that right. you were able to hang in there for four years <laughs> and put up with all this stuff you had to do. And you're actually learning very little that's useful. He might be right about some of that. I don't mm-hmm. know where the number came from exactly, but he, the, the general point is fairly well taken, except that it's good to have a lot of tools in your toolbox. Yeah, You know, liberal arts education does provide you with a lot of stuff that seems kind of random at the time, but you don't know how the world's going to change and what's going to turn out to be useful later. So it, I don't think it's a complete waste of time. Foundry uses active learning within a contained classroom, which is all happening on an online classroom environment. So if I'm a student coming in and say you're the facilitator, 
What is actually happening during that session? How am I learning? So I like to think about what I call learning sandwiches, which is an idea I got more recently, but it kind of codified what, what we were doing, which is there are two types of them. A front-loaded learning sandwich is where you get some just-in-time content. So you get a little lecture, maybe 10, 15 minutes, where you're told something that bears directly on a learning objective. Mm-hmm. And you're told what you need to know. Then, that's the first part, then you go into some kind of active learning, typically in breakout groups, where you use that information in some way. That's where you're really going to learn it. You're not going to learn it just by passively sitting there and listening to it, maybe writing it down. Right. So you, you use it in the service of problem solving or role playing. And then at the end, you have a debrief. So typically, there's some kind of work product that you're focused on during that middle phase, the active learning. And those then get evaluated, get feedback based on them at the end. So that's front-loaded. You can also do a back-loaded version of a learning sandwich, which is, do you know Eric Mazur's peer instruction no. technique? So he's a physicist at, at Harvard who's really uh, innovative in higher education. So he developed this technique he calls peer instruction. Let me give you an example, and then I'll explain what it, what it is. Say he's teaching kinetics. He would, he'll start off with a puzzle. He'll say, okay, say we got this sheet of iron. Say it's a yard by a yard. And it's about a quarter inch thick. Okay? And we cut out a foot in diameter hole, round hole right in the center. Out it goes. Now, we heat the entire sheet of iron up uniformly. That's, that's important. So it's red hot. Not melting, but it's really hot. Okay? Then he asks the class, and they have clickers. They're going to vote. Do you think that hole is going to get larger, smaller, or stay the same size? Three alternatives. Larger, smaller, stay the same size. After it gets heated, after the sheet gets heated, click, click, click. They vote. Then they go into small groups. This is done in a lecture hall, so people near you. And they discuss it. And teaching assistants and faculty kind of wander around, listen, they give hints like that. That word uniformly was an important hint. And then they vote again after about five minutes. And it, it turns out, by the way, the, the votes get more accurate. Second time, even if nobody got it right in the group mm. going into it, the process of discussing it turns out to be a useful way to start to learn, active learning. It shows the results of the pre and post and then gives a little debrief lecture. So a standard response that I get is people think it'll get smaller. Because I've got this intuition that when you heat it up, the molecules will get more energy and start pushing against each other. So they think, if you think of the four quadrants, they, they're expanding and they push in. So the hole gets smaller. The trouble is that the term, or that the uniformly thing was important, that the molecules right around the rim there have the same energy as all the other ones. So in order to overcome that and push them further in, you need additional energy, which you don't have because it was uniformly heated. So the answer is it expands, it gets okay. larger. So if you have a lid on a jar and it's stuck, you run under hot water, hmm. it'll expand the lid so that more than the, the metal lid, more than the glass, so that you can get it loose. So people have these intuitions. They know when it heats up, it's going to expand somehow. But in this case, they didn't think about what's called constraint satisfaction, where you've got same amount of energy pushing, so the whole thing just kind of goes 
goes out. So the backloaded learning sandwich starts with a puzzle or an issue or problem, something. Then they struggle with it for the act of learning. And then there's a reveal, a debrief at the end. So basically you can do variants on both of these so that the information information is loaded either at the beginning, the just-in-time front-loaded, or at the end when people know it's really relevant or interesting because they want to know what the answer to that puzzle was in the reveal. So a typical class at Foundry would have a little mini lecture and then some kind of breakout group and then a debrief and then that kind of thing. So typically they were more front-loaded. Part of Foundry's innovation is the learning platform, The Forge. So for all of our educational listeners who were stuck teaching on Zoom this last year during the pandemic, tell us what is different about Forge uh, that allows for active learning that's far superior than trying to teach on Zoom. Yeah. So The Forge was, was built with active learning in mind from the very beginning. So it could do standard types of active learning very, very easily. So for example, have you ever heard of a jigsaw? I'm familiar with the term because I had read your book. So they're not used very often in a traditional classroom. It's probably obvious why. It was an idea developed by Elliot Aronson in the early 70s, 1970s, for a completely different application. But the general idea turns out to be very useful in many contexts. So you start with a set of groups, which are homogenous in the sense that everybody in them has the same role. The simplest example is a debate where you have some groups that are preparing for pro-position, some for composition. And then here's the jigsaw part. You break them up and you create new groups where you have, say, two from each type of the previous group. So two from a pro group, two from a con group. You put them together. So it's four, half pro, half con. Another group. Additional four people, again, two from each of the original, two pro, two con, and so forth. So you can do that where you start off separate groups, and they can be for roles, not just two. You can do a role-playing game with four roles, which we have done, where you might be talking about water rights, mm-hmm. say, and you have people preparing for a negotiation over who gets water. And some are farm, representing farmers. They need the water for their crops. Some are homeowners. They want to take showers and water their lawns. Some are engineers who have to worry about how to get the water to people. Some are environmentalists who want to try to save as much water as possible. So each type of group, and you can have multiple copies. So you might have four people in each group, but six for each group, say, prepare for their role, knowing what the other ones are, preparing for a negotiation. This, I think, we did in the context of a BATNA. That is, we're teaching them a best alternative to negotiated agreement. BATNA comes from Uri and Fisher getting to yes. So we would have them prepare and then do the jigsaw. So now we have groups that have one representative of each type. So one farmer, one engineer, and so forth. Multiple, multiple groups. And their job was to try to figure out what the BATNAs were, the other members, what their backup plans were. That's what a bat is. You can't get what you want with your backup plan. Mm-hmm. And then they would report back. So we built the Forge to be able to do this kind of thing easily. So you keep track of the original groups so they can report back to them. Mm-hmm. They can have work products easily filed. You can collect lots and lots of data, like how much each person's talking in the groups, 
how much each person's cursor is moving in the shared document they're preparing, hmm. all this sort of thing. So you can use it as formative information to give them feedback. They're not as engaged as they should be or whatever. Lots of ways you can use such data. So the Forge was built with active learning in mind and collects a lot of data. There's a dashboard. Faculty can see really what's happening. There are other platforms like this now, by the way. Uh, Engagely has one that's, in some ways, it's very innovative. They're a different metaphor. Um, familiar with Minerva's active learning forum. Could you speak to maybe some of the improvements or changes that you guys have made in your guys' platform from that one? Well, ours is built for lectures. So theirs, theirs is really built for seminars. That, that's the fundamental construct behind it. Whereas ours is built for this have your cake and eat it too thing, where you can have a lecture. It was built for 200 was the number that we had in mind, but there's really no specific reason it has to be limited. It just was for practical had to do with the ease of setting up, of monitoring breakout groups. So we had a dashboard where each breakout group was represented by a little bar, which changed color depending on how much talking was going on. Mm. This is for the faculty. So at a glance, you could see which groups were problematic. There wasn't much going on in them. So you could click on that and join that group right. instantly. And the breakout groups can be anything from two people up to, I think, eight was largely where we ever had them. Mm. So it's a very different approach than what Minerva had in mind no lectures at Minerva yeah it's a flipped classroom model building a startup is a lot like running an experiment and obviously with you guys collecting data and figuring out what's working inside of these classrooms how did you approach maybe running the startup when you were originally there using the same techniques that maybe you learned during research your years in research so a crucial thing that a lot of people don't realize is that most experiments fail. Mm. So I remember when I was in grad school, I was talking to my thesis advisor, I was complaining because half of my experiments were failing. And he looked at me and said, you're doing something really wrong. Two thirds of them should be failing. <laughs> and I looked, I remember looking at him and he said, if you're doing stuff that's really innovative and not just twist on what other people are doing, most of them are probably going to fail. Yeah because you're not going to understand it well enough to make a well-formed hypothesis. He was dead right. He was absolutely right. So that kind of an understanding that you have to be willing to accept things are not going to work, but look carefully at the embers there in the ashes of the failed hmm. whatever it was, and try to pull out the beginnings that are going to rise phoenix-like from the ashes for the next experiment. What is it you think you got right what did you get wrong? How are you going to fix it? So that general attitude, you really have to take that in, into anything that, in my opinion, that's starting up fresh. And it means you have to really be very sensitive to data mm -hmm. and multiple forms. They can be anecdata. So people make a comment. doesn't mean you take it as gospel, but it is one observation. If there's a pattern that emerges, you'd be on the lookout. If this pattern emerges, take it seriously. Also measure things whenever you can. And a crucial, crucial thing is don't lose sight of your goals. Mm. Don't get nudged along where suddenly you're doing something different than what you're trying to do. So this, this is a crucial thing that I, that I learned through Minerva and, it's, and, and Foundry, and it's really informing what I'm doing now, big time, which is be really clear on what your learning objectives are. And, and by that, so these days, the way I think about that is hierarchically. 
that if I think about a course, I think at the very top level, how do I want the students to be changed when they leave the course, the end of the course? How are they going to view the world differently? What's going to be different about them? So that, that's the kind of thing that I would try to put into the course description, put a big picture. Then what I do is come up with four to six, say, course-level learning objectives. So sort of big things, a little more granular than just, you know, overall change, but still quite capacious. And then each of those typically corresponds to a unit that has a set of, I don't know, five or six individual lessons. And that's where the lesson level learning objectives come from. So people get confused. They think topics are the same thing as learning objectives, and they're not. Learning objectives have a verb in them. Mm. And they're not a verb like understand, by the way. (laughs) They're verbs like explain or describe or summarize or analyze, synthesize, things you can measure. So the idea is you want a learning objective that leads you to select what information you need to convey to achieve, help the students achieve that learning objective. And then what activity is going to use that information in the service of learning that, of mastering that learning objective. And then what you're going to measure by way of the learning outcomes. So you've got learning objective on the front end and learning outcome as a result. And ideally, they're the the same thing, that the students actually get the learning objective. Hmm. But where do those learning objectives come from? Well, the way we do it is hierarchically. We unpack the big picture, get it down to the level of individual units, what you're trying to get across, and then really get concrete and, and measure. Often it's formative. It's feedback to help them learn. But we, we want to know if we're achieving our goals. A common thread that's come through your experiments is this idea of active learning, which requires the learners to use the information in service of those learning outcomes. Explain to our listeners why active learning actually helps students master this information. Ah, funny you ask. So I wrote a book on this that was published last October called Active Learning Online. And it's, it's got five principles that I pulled out of literature. So the book that we did at Minerva called Building the Intentional University that the founder of Ben Nelson and I edited, which was chapters by various people. Minerva kind of four year, four, whatever, four and a half years maybe into it, kind of progress report. So I had written a chapter in there on the science of learning, which looking back on now, I kind of cringe. Mm-hmm. I had 16 principles, which was way too many. And I, I just... I don't know. I hadn't digested it enough, even though I've, I've co-author of four textbooks in psychology and cognitive science. I had been immersed in this stuff for decades. I hadn't really distilled it as well as it could have been done. And I realized that some of those principles were actually special cases of other principles. Mm. Some of them were actually combinations of other principles. They actually weren't separate in their own right. They were actually derived from. So when I started thinking about it in terms of what would the absolute base principles look like, I was able to get get it down to just five. And it, it seems to work really well. I mean, those five, I'm not revising them at this point. I can't think of exceptions or other things that I've read don't fit in as, as either specific cases, special cases of one of them or a result of combining them in some way. So I can tell you what they are if you're interested. Absolutely, please. Okay. So the first one is deep processing. So let me ask you a question. At the end of the day, 
can you reflect back on what happened during the day? Think about it. Yeah. Okay. Here's the question. What percentage of what you remember at the end of the day, do you think at the time it was happening, you intentionally tried to memorize it so you'd be able to call later? Yeah, probably very little. The modal number, I've, I've asked uh, probably about 1,500 people this now, the modal number is 5%. Hmm. So I've done it with large groups where I ask them to raise their hand, 50% or more, no one ever raises their hand. Then I say 25% or more, three people have, by the way. And then I go down in increments of five, and by far the, the modal number is somewhere around five, five ten, somewhere in there. So think about this. What that implies is over 90% of what you recall at the end of the day, you didn't try to remember at the time it was happening. How, how can you remember it? It's because you paid attention and thought it through. Hmm. And the more you process something, the more likely it is you're going to remember it. Also understand it. It's not unrelated, by the way. So deep processing important. Crucial thing about deep processing is what you focus on is what you remember. Hmm. So if I ask you to focus on how a, a word would sound, if you read it, you're later remember it sound better than its meaning in terms right. of a cue that I can use. If I ask you to make some judgment based on its meaning, you remember meaning better than the sound. This is a study done by John Bransford and company, Vanderbilt in the late 70s, actually, classic classic study. But the point is, it's not that one type of information is necessarily more memorable than another type. It's really what you are focused on thinking about. Okay, so that's deep processing. Another is deliberate practice. So deliberate practice is where you focus in on the specific components or aspects of what you're trying to learn that are hardest for you, that require the most effort. Usually you identify those via feedback. So when I was learning French, which I never fully mastered, but it's a good hobby, I had a tutor, and I'd say a word, trying, and she would then repeat it back the way it's supposed to sound. And I would listen really closely for the disparity, for what was different between how she said it and how I had said it. And then I'd try it again, trying to reduce the delta. Mm. Uh, golf coach, any of these kind of things. So where you get feedback trying to zero you in on what you really need to focus on practicing better. That's deliberate practice. Anders Ericsson is the main man there. Another is dual coding. So that goes back to my imagery stuff. So it turns out you remember more if you get both a picture and verbal description. Or you form a mental image and you get the verbal description. Hmm. So if you have two ways to remember it, showing and telling, you're going to do better than just one by itself. So Alan Pavio is the main guy there, and I did, did work on that too. So these three cluster, they're all about processing, how much you process and what you process. So deep processing, basically the more processing you focus on it, the more you're likely. Deliberate practice, zeroing in what's hardest. Work on that. Dual coding, focus in on two different kinds of things. You'll have more memories that you can later use. The next two of the five are different. They're about connections. Okay. So chunking is one where based on similarity and proximity, things are grouped. You can imagine if you're listening to music and there are different instruments or different registers, like a bass and a lead guitar, you can group the, the different notes of the lead guitar 
based on their similarity over over time, uh, the, their pitch and timbre, and similar with the bass. So you you got proximity and time and similarity, which will help you group things auditorily. Mm. In fact, there's a auditory streaming is what this this is called. So the the trick about chunking is that it's hierarchical. That is. Each chunk, and you should have no more than three or maybe four, although I advise three, each of those can contain three or four. So there was this famous study done at Carnegie Mellon by Anders Ericsson, was an author, and Bill Chase, Steve Falloon, where they brought in undergraduate, the lab, sat them down, it's okay, are you willing to come to the lab at least three days a week for the next year and a half? Volunteered. <laughs> What'd they do? They read him random digits. So they started with one, maybe it was four, I don't know what it was. And they said, okay, can you repeat that back? He did that just fine. Then they gave him two random digits, maybe six, three. Repeat them back, just fine. Then three, maybe seven, two, one. And this kept adding, made it in a list longer and longer. The end of that first day, I think he did seven. Standard kind of short-term memory. working. The trick was they kept bringing them back, just doing the same thing with different digits. One a second, by the way, one a second. At the end of a year and a half, you know how many digits he could repeat back? How many? 79. That's incredible. Incredible. One a second, 79 random digits. How'd he do it? It turns out he was a marathon runner. And what he learned was to convert the digits into times hmm. of different segments and then create this hierarchical structure of, a, of races he could have run by putting together segments. And he came up with other techniques too, but that was the main one. The idea being that digits start off as individual units, but then you can start grouping them. That's why telephone numbers are set up the way they are, with a prefix and so forth. You group them, creates chunks. And then each of those chunks can be a member of a larger chunk, a segment of a mythical race or whatever. So you, you can do it not just visual, not just auditory, but conceptually. So in fact, right now I'm doing it because I said the first three of those principles right. were based on thinking and paying attention. The next two are on connections. I'm, that's a way of chunking them. So chunking was the fourth. So deep processing, deliberate practice, dual coding, the first three. The last one's associations. You, you use associations, help you remember things by integrating new information into what you already know. There, there was something called the paradox of the expert, where what it turns out the more you know about something, the easier it is to learn even more. Mm. And that people found non-intuitive because it felt like, well, why isn't your memory kind of getting full or filled up or something? Well, it turns out the more you know about something, the more hooks you have to hang new information, the easier it is to integrate it in. And that's what it's all about, integrating in, making these connections. And those will in turn help you organize. So it feeds into chunking and can be used as cues to help you recall it later to be able to dig it out. All this stuff is in that book that I wrote. The last piece I want to say about this is that it's really the combinations of these principles that's critical. They, they don't really operate alone. You saw that a second ago when I started talking about how associations can be used um, to help you chunk. Right. If you understand what these principles are and you see how you can combine them, you then can devise active learning techniques. This is where mine have come from. The kinds of problem solving, kinds of role playing games and so forth. They're all kind of designed to draw on these principles. So take that water rights thing I talked about. If the learning objective was to learn the best alternative negotiated agreement, how to do a good bat and a good backup plan, 
what we want you to do is focus on that. So that first set of groups where you're planning, uh, how you can argue for your farmers or your engineers or whomever, so they get what they want, that focuses you coming up with a strategy which includes the patna, which is part of our learning objective. And then that second phase where we jigsaw it and put you together with people from the other constituencies, we want you to try to figure out what their badness were. So we're getting you to focus your processing on that, to pay attention to that. So we're using these principles. And then we, we bring you back to the original groups and you're going to discuss it. So the idea is we design the active learning exercises with these principles in mind to try to promote learning. And that, that's what it's all about for us. Yeah, you have uh, quite a few great examples in your book. And so I highly recommend people to get that in order to integrate this into an education environment. But for those that maybe are doing self-directed learning or personal learning by themselves at home, are there any ways that we could personally use these in combination with one another? Yeah, there are. But I got to tell you, there's a book by someone I've never met named Scott Young mm. called Ultra Learning. I've never met him, but it's an excellent book. And it's, it's not, a, so the book that I wrote was about teaching, mm-hmm. how to teach so students will learn. It was focused on instructors, really. The book he wrote is on self-learning. He's a world-class self-learner. Got through the entire MIT curriculum in a year. He learned, I don't know how many different languages, stuff like that. So he, he I went through that book carefully, and I, what I was looking for was anything he did that didn't fit into these five principles. Yeah. And I was impressed. It all worked the stuff that he did, all of which every single thing in there can be understood as individual or combinations of these principles mm. in exactly the way that I would have hoped. He uses deliberate practice. So he talks about, for example, he's learning to draw, teach himself to draw. So he, I think it's his own face. He tries to draw his face and he has a photograph. So what he's doing is instead of having a teacher give you feedback when you say a word, he tries to draw something and then uses the photograph as the feedback, and then iterates that way in terms of the cycle of zeroing in what the what you need to focus on more and get better at it. Yeah. So he used the same kinds of things I'm talking about here, totally independently, just a self-directed learner. Hey, this is Brandon Stover, and you're listening to the Evolve Podcast with Stephen Costlin, founder of Active Learning Sciences and Foundry College. In just a moment, you're going to hear why after having such success in his education startups, he decided to launch another in order to reach more learners at scale. But first, I want to let you know that all the resources and lessons from this episode are available as a free worksheet at evolvethe.world and clicking on the worksheet button in the upper right hand corner. All the expertise and lessons that Stephen is sharing today are super valuable, but they're only as valuable as the ones that you're actually going to put into execution. So that's why I distill all the action items from each episode into one easy to use step-by-step worksheet. So now you can immediately start applying these to your life and business. These lessons include how to turn years of research and expertise into startups, how to iterate and scale successful solutions, and opportunities for entrepreneurs to tackle in education, and so many more. All these lessons are available at evolvethe.world and clicking on the worksheet button in the upper right-hand corner. That's evolvethe.world, or you can follow the link inside the show notes of your podcast app. Now let's get back to the Evolve podcast with Stephen Costlin, founder of Active Learning Sciences and Foundry College, as he describes why he decided to launch another startup called Active Learning Sciences, focused on teaching others to implement the science of learning. 
I wanted to go from retail to wholesale, basically. So active learning sciences is about three things. It's about designing courses for institutions from scratch that use active learning. So we have quite a number of groups we're working with now, including internationally. It's about helping faculty take courses they've already got and upgrading them to use active learning, which in some ways is harder than starting from scratch, by the way. And then it's about teaching faculty and course designers how to do this themselves. So, So there's a course that I've done in collaboration with Noodle Partners, which is, it's an always-on asynchronous course. I work with a guy named David Green, and we, we have, it's 10 modules. It goes to, it, the book is the textbook, by the way, for it. So it, it builds on the book and teaches students or faculty, whoever it is, how to actually use active learning in the course of teaching. Hmm. So that. That's scalable. So those are the three things that active learning sciences do, all, all of does, all of which have in common this idea of, of really trying to scale up big time to get these effective teaching methods out there so they can be used effectively. Yeah. Uh, one of the projects I've seen in an article I was reading, you guys are working with a medical school to yeah. that relies on the active learning so that students can you know master these things to, no matter their background. Can you explain, using this project as an example, how you integrated the active learning? That's a great project. That's a a new medical school. It's starting from scratch at the Keck Graduate Institute. The first thing that that it's doing is a two-year Master of Science in Community Medicine, and that is going to be a sort of on-ramp into the medical school proper. Hmm. And They're also making arrangements with other medical schools. It's a novel kind of master's degree. There's no, there is no other one like it. And part of what we're doing is we have, so it's focused on community medicine. So we have courses on infectious diseases, chronic diseases, kind of thing you'd expect, but also uh, courses on health system sciences and direct to consumer technologies and various other things that you'd really want to know about if you were interacting with people right. uh, in a community and trying to help community get better, not Right. Not just the people in it, them them too, obviously, but change structures. So part of what we're doing is just a capstone where the students actually spend the day a week working in some community institution where they're applying what they're learning in the classes and bring it back into the classes. Hmm. So the active learning that we're using, some of it, not all of it, is very, very much integrating what's happening in the real world with what they're learning in class. And again, we use a variety of different kinds of techniques. So that's a synchronous, that's a set of synchronous courses. Most of the stuff we're doing is asynchronous. So the huge challenge has been to, to do active learning asynchronously, which has not been the focus of any other group that I'm aware of. That's our entire focus. So that, that course I mentioned we did with Noodle. It, we, we, you know, the Silicon Valley expression, eating your own dog food. Yes. <laughs> So we used active learning to teach active learning, but it's all asynchronous. So it's kind of an interesting challenge. So you've been mentioning these terms, asynchronous and synchronous, and right now you're thinking about uh, hybrid learning. So can you give us your four-quadrant breakdown of hybrid learning? I think hybrid learning is going to end up being the future. I think it's going to be the residue of what's happened during the pandemic. 
is going to be where the pendulum kind of settles. Prior to the pandemic, I think people had this idea that hybrid was just a combination of in-person and online. That was it. That's the idea. And I think that some of that is probably still how people think about what hybrid is. And that would, I think, be unfortunate if that's the way we continue to think about it as we come out of the pandemic. So what I, what I, the way I think about it is this two-by-two table, as you just alluded to. Think of the columns as being the modes, synchronous and asynchronous. So synchronous, faculty members, students are there at the same time. Standard, traditional classrooms, one example. Asynchronous is where they're not there at the same time. Faculty member may design a recording or something that student later watches. So you've got synchronous, asynchronous columns. Rows are in-person or online. So you have these four quadrants now, which I think of as different modalities. So asynchronous online, Coursera would be a good example, or any of these kind of um, typical online asynchronous course where it's in Canvas and you've got modules and you work through them at your own pace. Asynchronous in person is an interesting one. That's like what you do in a community project Hmm. or traditional distance education where you get materials mailed to you or something where you don't have interaction with anybody else. It's just you or anybody else, the other students or the faculty member, other people maybe if it's a project, but it's it's not the same as online where you can post questions and so forth. You're really just doing it yourself. And then the synchronous in-person is a traditional classroom. You're all sitting around or lecture. Right. And what we're doing right now is an example of online synchronous. You and I are Zooming here, as did many people in the pandemic, and that's what uh, Foundry does. It's synchronous. And that's what Engagely does. And various other platforms, Minerva, also synchronous online. So what's interesting to me is that there are 11 possible ways to do hybrid. So it's not just in-person combined with online. Each of those cells has strengths. You know, like the asynchronous stuff is good if you want to take your time and be self-paced to learning. No one's breathing down your throat. You may have a, a weak window or something to do a project in, but it's not like you have to do it right this instant. Right. Whereas small group interaction, it turns out it's really good online. With, with Even Zoom can be really good at that in a way that's hard to do. That, that's the reason that the jigsaw method really never caught on. It's just logistically super difficult to do in person. People mm. drag chairs into the corner of a room, <laughs> hear them all talking, run out of space, have to figure out how to rearrange them. And, yeah, it's a pain. Whereas push of a button, you can do it on the, the you know Foundry platform, Forge, push of a button. So there are things in each of those four cells, modalities, do particularly well. So then what I, what I want to do is I want to say, okay, take a step back. You're going to have a course or a program. Tell me what your goals are. Tell me what resources you and your students have. And tell me the constraints. And when you start thinking of it that way, uh, you go through the four cells. And you say, well, if I'm teaching people in India who are poor, they have cell phones, uh, but they don't have computers, but they have mailboxes, what can I do? How should I combine those four modalities to to really teach them effectively? That's going to be different than if I'm teaching teachers how to use a new piece of software so they can teach their students. 
right. who have very different resources. So think about the constraints, time zones, the amount of money they have. Think about resources, computers, uh, access to uh, broadband, et cetera. Excellent. Well, one of the pieces I found pretty intriguing in there was this idea of using one modality and then maybe moving to another. So starting in person, getting that connection with everyone, mm-hmm. and then being able to move that online so that they still had that established community, but were able to use the benefits and the powers of online learning later on. Exactly right. So that's the other piece. Things change. So I, I think initial meetings in person are really important, especially if emotion is going to be at all relevant, depending on the content of the course. Because I think we pick up on nonverbal cues from other people much better in person than over a screen. Absolutely. But after you get to know somebody a little bit, or it's not as important to be in person with them. That's one reason. So I think there's a huge range of possibilities for how future education can move forward after this pandemic. And I, I really hope that they get explored. And I hope that they're, they're done right and people measure and there's feedback about what's effective and what isn't and so forth. I mean, I see this gigantic opportunity to have major advances in education. Yeah, what questions in the science of learning or education are you still grappling with that, you know, if they were answered would be a pretty big breakthrough or, you know, tremendously move education forward? So the, the, the big stumbling block for me right now is really about assessment and assessment at scale. So there have been these approaches from latent semantic analysis and then, of course, the bag of words where they just score it without any relations among the words based on relative frequencies of different words, things like that. These approaches are out there. They're not good enough. I'd, I'd really like to have an automated way of having a machine re- really understand what someone has written so they can get feedback. I want to be able to scale the 10,000 people inexpensively. And I want to be able to have a richer set of assessment measures than just multiple choice. And we do deliberate practice at scale. So doing deliberate practice on rich assessments would be fantastic. Mm. And that's going to require some advances in technology. What, what opportunities do you see for maybe for-profit education startups in the current mark, market over traditional institutions? So traditional institutions have traditions, which is both their strength and in some ways their lesson strengths, and that they're going to be much slower. And they're going to be a reluctance to change in many ways especially the R1s, the Research One institutions, 130 or so that are kind of the leaders in the segments, they, they often incentivize faculty to focus on their research and not, not on their teaching. Right. So it's, it's harder to get big changes. Now, people teach them quite a lot of effort. It makes sense in terms of the incentive structure. Why, why invest energy in doing that? Whereas with a small startup, you can be very nimble. You can collect data pivot very quickly, update, uh, and move. So I think moving forward with these opportunities now for, the, the say, the 11 different types of hybrid that I identified, to be able to try them out and find out what the fit is for different kinds of goals, different kinds of things you're trying to teach to different kinds of people, with different aims, and so forth, I think it would be much, much faster and probably more efficient in a for-profit 
environment where you got to make it work. So I think there there's some potential real advantages that the small startups may have over larger traditional institutions in terms of being able to innovate and refine innovations moving forward. Yeah, I think it's looking at those, you know, 11 approaches, you could look at the audience that you are trying to teach, look at what resources that audience have, what resources you have, and then you could start, you know, going through those 11 approaches and deciding, okay, which one is going to be best to reach the learning outcomes we want for this audience based on the resources we have. And then there's a business opportunity right there choosing that model. That's it. That, exactly. I think that's right. So that's going to be way easier for a startup than a traditional institution. Well, before I get to my last question, is there a call to action you'd like to leave the listeners with today? Yeah, I, it, it seems to me that it, there's a huge consensus that education is the key to a better future for everybody. I don't, I don't think there's any argument about that. And, and multiple levels of education from K-12 through postgraduate to upskilling on the job. I mean, just in general, education is the key for individuals and for the society at large to be able to prosper. And from my perspective, there's no debate anymore that active learning is just way better than the traditional methods of lecturing, having students write things down, take midterms and finals and all that. And if I had a call to action, it would be to try to promote more active learning. Mm -hmm. People should understand what it is. It's not just a discussion. So active learning is where you do something in the service of achieving a learning objective. So there's a reason you're doing it. There's a point to it. It's not just you're talking. It's actually trying to achieve goal. And that sort of thing is vastly, vastly better than many traditional methods. We really, really should be trying to adopt it more widely. My last question is, how can we push the world to evolve? Okay. So going back to my naivete about the world will be the path to your door if you have a better mousetrap, which turns out not to be true. So demonstrating success, it's not enough, but it's a necessary first step. And changing the regulatory environment would help a lot. If we could convince politicians we need more innovation in education and they would support and nurture that, there would be dividends for everyone. So we've we've got to have an environment where we can innovate and see if it works. Yeah. And the current environment, it's hard. I mean, just accreditation is very, very difficult. It's something I've learned in the last couple of things I've done, and it's really a barrier. So changes in the regulatory environment would really make a difference. So if anybody hears discussion of such or has any connections with politicians who are interested in this sort of thing, setting up a situation so that it's monitored, you have, you have tight responsibility you're not you're not just letting people innovate any which way and let let fly on the other hand you're not just you know killing it in the cradle i mean you want to set up an environment where innovations can be tried out and evaluated and the best ones actually adopted Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show today i will definitely put all the links to your books active learning the five principles 
and also to your active learning sciences so that people can start engaging more with us and implementing these things. I think it will be a great, great benefit to education. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Brandon. I've enjoyed it immensely and I, I wish you all the best. Take care. That was Stephen Costlin, founder of Active Learning Sciences and Foundry College. A big takeaway from today's interview is the opportunity startups have in the education space. As Stephen was describing, startups are nimble and have access to data and are not bogged down by the traditions and bureaucracies of traditional education institutions. As we discussed, a startup should assess the audience that they're trying to teach, look at what resources that audience has, look at what resources you have as a startup, then look at the learning objectives that you're trying to get across to these students, and then create a solution that best matches that criteria by deciding between an asynchronous or synchronous delivery and in-person or online congregation. Now, if you want an easy-to-use resource full of all the lessons from this episode, they are available as a free downloadable worksheet at evolvethe.world and clicking on the worksheet button in the upper right-hand corner. You can also find all the show notes and transcripts from this episode at evolvethe.world slash episode slash 60. Thank you for listening and joining the Evolution Revolution. If this episode was impactful for you, then share it with a friend, because pushing the world to evolve takes more than just you or I. Until next time, my friends, keep evolving. <laughs>